Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. I'm back! <laughs> and we're here back to talk about news and politics. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a new world. I yeah. We haven't recorded for, it seems like, forever. Mm-hmm. And such a, I had to look at politics again. Uh, I just opened my eyes this morning and thought, we're going to be recording today. And you look at the headlines and I just couldn't make sense of any of it. <laughs> it was all... Completely, completely different. Completely <laughs> different. Uh, it's it's amazing what a month of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister has done <laughs> to transform the political landscape. He really seems to be uh, getting used to the role and bringing a new swagger to British politics. Did you fucking see that? Um, uh, it was someone pointed out because the the Guardian have made it clear to Dawn Foster, mm-hmm. uh, the a Corbyn friendly. Um, columnist that they won't be using her services anymore. They mm-hmm. won't be asking her to write for them anymore. And uh, immediately someone posted a, uh, uh, an opinion column from the deputy editor of The Spectator saying, Boris seems to be bringing a new swagger and he doesn't seem to have fallen into many of the traps that people have <laughs> thought he would fall into. It's like, for fuck's sake, it was just like a press, it was just like a yeah. press release from his, from his office. Yeah. Just yeah. written in the paper, and that doesn't—it doesn't matter because there's ten thousand more left in the tank. Yeah, there's just piles and piles and piles of it laying everywhere. The unwanted opinions sitting on the street corner with a little <laughs> sign saying, "Please put me in your paper." Yeah, it's—it's it's a—I—I it, I lost nothing. I no. lost nothing from paying attention, but mm. like not really thinking about how to turn it into podcast fodder. It's good for the brain. To take a break like that, I find. Um, uh, but yeah, what have you, what have you been up to? I've been up to. I'll tell you, say what I've been up to first. First off, A levels done, exams in. Well, results uh, are did, in. Did you, did you pass? Um, uh, I, I failed all of them. Uh, um, well, the thing is, exams now are a lot easier. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. Um, from everybody. so, it's important to remember that my two Ds and two Es are significantly better than my daughter's achievements, <laughs> and I so could have got into Oxford if I wanted. <laughs> And you will now nurse that grudge for the rest of your life. It will, it will form your, form around your personality like a coral reef, and uh, that will be your thing from now on. It is bitter um, resentment of those younger than you, and better. Within a week, I'll have a column in spiked. <laughs> um, so yeah, so doing all the stuff, sort of university stuff. So you know, yeah. had a, re- a recurring back and forth with the student loan company about the fact that I don't have any money. Seriously, I don't have any money. And they're like, no, please, can you prove that you don't have any money? It's like, I don't know what more I can do to show you. Would you like me to turn up and empty my pockets out for you? I can do that. I can do that. I can show you how empty my pockets are. But, you know. So evidence, evidence, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Didn't you read your Dawkins? No. No, I didn't. <laughs> the Hugh delusion. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, it's weird sorting out all that stuff. And then it's just weird because it's like, it's just weird. Next stage. Of life, so now I yeah. slowly slide into reaction reviews and senility, <laughs> like all parents do when their kids go off to university. Um, I very much doubt that. <laughs> um, but if yeah. anything, well, it will be senility, mm-hmm. but if anything, you'll be more insufferable. Yes, oh, 100%. More insufferably left wing. Yep, yep. <laughs> I was like, oh god, he's forgotten about telling you about Kropotkin again, <laughs> just going over and over again. But, um, yeah, it's just it's just bizarre. It's a bizarre feeling, and it's made it very hard to think about anything, really. Yeah, I know. But what you mean. Um, it's good to, it is good sometimes to try and not 
read the news. It, it's the news it's the... a different kind of thing when, like, the way I'm approaching things at the moment is when we don't have like when we don't have any particular plans for an episode mm. i will try and look at what people are talking about mm. because that's like the only that's like that's that's one way of doing like i guess a politicsy podcast mm. and uh, if this podcast is anything it is politicsy e um but you end up getting in that mode where all you're doing is kind of combing it for the funniest bits and combing it for like grist to the mill mm. you're 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 trying to process it through and it's it's i think it's why like a lot of us a lot of the stuff that i want to talk about ends up kind of sounding the same a because you know i'm just my brain is shot to hell <laughs> and is bad anyway mm-hmm. but also because if you follow that kind of the national conversation or the discourse mm. it really has it really does just repeat itself oh, like yeah. stuff I, I like stuff we've got to talk about today at some point we've talked about uh, some of it there's a different spin on it certainly mm. i think but like you just end up thinking did i already did we already do an episode mm-hmm. on this did we already mm-hmm. did we already like talk about this stuff mm-hmm. and it's it's yeah strange yeah so um yeah so there'll be a break next week because then i'm going on holiday the last holiday with my kid before she leaves me oh um but then we'll be back to normal after that but um yeah, we've got some plans for like proper subjects. Yeah, because it's like it was, that's the thing as well. With like, it's hard not to be really angry all the time when you're reading anything. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's Ursula Le Guin's written some good stuff on anger mm. and like how it's useful as a motivating tool. Yeah. Like you've got to do something about it, otherwise it's quite poisonous. Yeah. And you just end up really just, just down. Frustrated anger can lead to catharsis or it can lead to, yeah, just building up and mm. building up. And that's how you end up as like a Matt Ford. Mm-hmm. Just constantly building up these ever so slight irritations. I don't think he's and not allowing any... Time. Anytime he feels angry, he just touches that painting, well, no, that oil painting that he's got of Tony Blair, like Napoleon, like Paul he has. <laughs> I was uh, for some for some other uh, project I'm doing. I, I was watching some clips of like Unspun. That's his like TV program on on Gold, and just like watching his breakdown of of Brexit. And it's one of those like mock the week style kind of stand in front of a thing and trying to ape the Daily Show slightly. Um, but there's no there's no actual jokes in it. No. There's some there's some like decent information about like say where EU laws come from. Mm-hmm. But he ends with, yeah, the truth is, fuck knows. And like that's that's like oh. a blocking of that <laughs> of that catharsis, like of the jokes and of the anger yeah. all blending into one. You don't yeah. get that with him and a lot of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it gets very... Uh, very it, can, it can get very built up, like poison. I'm very glad that it seems that he's had a very bad year this year at Edinburgh. Oh, really? Apparently this is like his the worst show he's had. It's like the least funny one. And <laughs> he's been there for years, constantly having unfunny shows <laughs> um so right where are we all told um in high politics parliamentary politics parliament's on a, a uh the most on recess now. politics oldest parliament oldest mother, mother of parliaments of all parliaments and if we know anything about boris johnson is he and respects mothers, mothers. <laughs> he loves mothers well imagine he probably did like his mum doesn't like any of the mothers of his children it seems but you know <laughs> Boris's plan at the moment seems to be a whirlwind tour hitting you with numerous headlines on a single day, each more ludicrous than the last. Mm-hmm. Um, his plan at the moment, as far as I can see... Sell if you, poor pies to the Americans. Yeah. If you take a step back... It's a good plan. 
he is at l- at least what he is trying to do is trying to move a conversation forward of like I want to I want a nonsensical deal that's not going to happen mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to increasingly build up resentment of the EU the EU for their part are resolute in not wanting to grant him anything other than the withdrawal agreement I do get the um, feeling that even if they agree to some of his things which are super vague which is how they're going to get away with him saying no to it because yeah. it's like we can't say yes to something this vague it's like even if they said yes to all of it he's going to say I want Macron to apologise <laughs> yeah. and it's like well no, no I want every leader of every country in Europe to say sorry for all the years of abuse that we poor Brits have had to suffer from them <laughs> I want them all to apologise for all those Eurovisions where we were the best one we got nothing nothing I want Jean-Claude Juncker to drag the Azerbaijani judges out <laughs> and make them apologise. Reinstate the fast food bandits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so he keeps hitting the backstop mm-hmm. as the you know the only obstacle. It's very it's very weird that I mean we went through like a few months ago about the the May's withdrawal agreement and mm-hmm. kind of how sketchy it is in terms of. The oversight committee is very—it's very EUified. It's very a committee of twelve people mm-hmm. deciding on disputes within the trade agreement. Because obviously, the withdrawal agreement is not the full thing. No, All negotiations take place under the auspices of the of the withdrawal agreement. But he's now moved on to the a potential U.S. trade deal, yeah. um, which will be his cover from presumably WTO tariffs once yeah. if they leave with no deal. Yeah, it's a. Well, the thing is, it, it could be really good. They get pork pies, we get Mountain Dew Code Red. We will um, never get Mountain Dew Code Red. No, no. Um, but, yeah, we will. We'll get Mountain Dew Code Red. Eventually. Yeah, but we won't have the National Health Service to look after us after <laughs> we suffer from... Well, I say suffer. After I deliberately inflict I was Mountain say, Dew Code Red on myself. We, we <laughs> and I is an important <laughs> distinction. <laughs> Once we're free from... The bureaucrats in the EU reducing how much caffeine I'm allowed in an energy drink. In a single serving. Yeah. It'll be amazing. Once my heart's like a hummingbird, and then the Americans have taken away my NHS to deal with my hummingbird heart. Well, then, of course, everyone's complaining about how slow the EU negotiations are. On Mountain Mm -hmm. Dew Code Red, with all of our hearts beating as one, (laughs) we could get through it just in days. Yep. And then all uh, crash. it's, It's... I don't like... The thing is, like, a deal with the Americans is weird, and it's like the EU one that they were doing for fucking ages that then Trump tore up because he thought that he was being ripped off. Um, that's what he did, didn't he, with TTIP? Trump got rid of it straight away. TTIP, I think he simply withdrew his support for it, which yeah. without the Americans, it yeah. goes away. But um, it's like support. when you're negotiating, it's like when you're negotiating a trade deal, the people yeah. with the bigger market have more of a say. Mm. And unsurprisingly, us on our own don't have as much of a say as the EU. <laughs> so negotiating with the Americans about anything just leads us into a situation where Trump gets angry with us because we're not going to sell him the Isle of Man. <laughs> because that's something that I've been really enjoying him wanting to buy Greenland. And oh, yeah, yeah. That, he's not the first American no, president no. to try and buy um, Greenland. Why do they want like, it so much? It's uh, access to the Arctic Circle. Oh, okay. it's, uh, I mean, if you think about it in Cold War logic, it's access to the Arctic Circle and access to Russia, mm. like across the Arctic. So they've already got access- a huge air base there. Why do you want access to the Arctic Circle? What do you want? Because they want to send bombers over. Yeah, they yeah. want to send bombers over the Arctic Circle in order to get at, get at Russia. But the liberals have all told me that, um, that Trump and Putin are gay for each other. 
So like, why would they? Why would he throw? Well, okay, bombs? easy access to Putin. Okay, well, they've made that. They must have made that joke by now. Yeah, one hundred percent, definitely. Oh God, I definitely. hate them so much. <laughs> um, yeah, so Boris continues to try and like wheedle his way to a stage where I think he can. I think his game plan is probably see if I can accept the I can accept the original withdrawal deal mm-hmm. as long as I have one, maybe two high scale high scale like uh, concessions. Mm-hmm. And what like one high profile trade deal mm-hmm. um, in place for no deal that looks like a success to him. Yeah, which it's know, okay. All sense. the car industry stuff is gone, but the pork pie industry, it's just the pork pie thing, is just like okay. Admittedly, America, I think they would go crazy for pork pies. Yeah, that they don't get Melton Mowbray pork pies. I feel sorry for any American listeners that you don't get to enjoy that. I haven't enjoyed one for a long time, but I remember them being a staple of my hangovers. <laughs> Something about that salty grey meat. The jelly. Boy, howdy. It's the jelly that the yeah. people have a problem with. It's that I have a problem with. Yeah, it's because you're a coward. Let me just eat this salty jelly. Yeah. Was, was, how could you... <laughs> no, it's, it's inconceivable to me that... <laughs> like, th- things that I miss as vegan. It's, because you can't... It's inconceivable you, to you because your brain is full of salty jelly. <laughs> well, it's like... It's replaced as, half your it's brain. It's thing that, like, I've had vegan pork pies and they don't have the salty jelly. And it's like, it's not as good. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just a weird... It's like... He's going to upset. He's going to focus on like, and if he gets a big trade deal, it will be over things, things like that. It'd be so. Oh, specific. the way he, the way it'll he, be w- cheddar and it'll be like, oh, we're selling them cheddar and pork pies. Yeah, the amazing thing, rather about, than anything that actually matters. No, like like big things that will employ more people. If Boris is successful, mm-hmm. it will be if if those kind of things that he does are successful, it's because he has been able to translate. Uh, culture war terms mm. into an actual like electable mm. like election winning thing yeah. that you know if, if people really do are that committed to like symbols of Englishness and symbols of Britishness over at their actual material like demands that yeah. they need for their lives mm. then he'd be the one to do it you know mm. uh, they'll let him mm-hmm. <laughs> because every single journalist is doing the same thing yeah um, yeah. By doing their Englishness thing, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know. Mm. Um, speaking of material demands, the other interesting thing that leapt out to me over the last month was um, IDS talking about pensions. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, Ian Duncan Smith took this uh, report from I think it was the Centre of Social Justice, okay. which is a Tory, of course, it is a, uh, a right wing um, think tank. Um, about removing barriers for older people to work... It, he, he, this was his tweet in support of it, in support of pension reforms. Removing barriers for older people to working longer has the potential to improve health and well-being, increase retirement savings, and ensure the full functioning of public services for all. The CSJ report argues for more support for older workers, better healthcare support, increased access to flexible working, better opportunities for training, employer-led midlife MOT and implementation of an age confidence scheme, provided that this support is in place. The report proposes an increase in the state pension age to 75 by 2035. Hashtag ageing confidently. We don't have a life expectancy of 75 in a lot of the country. I had to look at places that I've lived and the life expectancy there, and uh, most of them only exceed that by about a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Like, I think Medway is like 76.7 overall. Yeah, it's interesting that this seems to be the same kind of tactic that they went for with the social care reforms during mm-hmm. the 2017 election. Yeah. And we saw how well that worked for them. But it's incredible with 
how much people make of the change in like whenever they seem to have this thing about whenever there's a change of leader that the whole part like apparatus and, and, and outlook of a political party changes mm. and with Boris coming in having been him being such a like personality departure from Theresa May they assume that he's going to be like they make the same assumption that they did about um, Brown when he mm. came in that it's like oh he's more socialist here it comes and I remember thinking when Brown came in it's like I mean probably not but maybe maybe a little more and then it's British jobs for British workers mm-hmm. and you see all that happened was you kind of got a look in to see actually how desperate mm-hmm. and how on the like how in, in what in what catastrophe that the Labour Party was yeah. after Blair like how they had run out of all ideas and that they were going to pivot towards like blue labor, social mm-hmm. authoritarianism, social conservatism, and you can see they a kind of doing that before, but yeah, yeah. I mean, they were doing it but before, doing it but hard. They would plow. They would plow that in because they were terrified of being seen as too yeah. liberal. Now, that maps onto this in that Cameron comes in and tries to combine um, like deficit hawk stuff with social concern, like like ultimately patronizing, yeah. patriarchal kind of social concern. Hierarchical social concern, uh, Victorian neo-Victorian Renaissance stuff, reigniting the charity sector and all that kind of thing, and it was pretty obvious that it wasn't that that the punishment would always outweigh the the and any good any support network that was put in there by installing charities would be undone by the fact that public services were being defunded and yeah. people would suffer, and. It kind of happened with Theresa May. She tried to, every time they said she had tanks on Corbyn's lawn, tanks on Labour's lawn, it would be exactly the same thing. She would promise a load of money for something and the money might appear or might not, but it didn't really matter because the the structures that were there that the funding could actually affect had been so altered by austerity mm-hmm. that it couldn't help anybody. Yeah. And over time you see them kind of almost flip it round whereby they might spend a little bit more money on actual things that still work. Mm -hmm. So they might say, we are just going to pump money into the NHS like there's no tomorrow, which, again, not exactly the way that they did it. But they then took the things that they had said that they were going to, that would be the nice things. Mm. So maybe the Conservative Party is nice for you if you have a pension, because that's their electoral base. Yeah. and they seem to want to attack that in order to get back some of their cred with the groups that they had left behind mm-hmm. by their previous policies, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, austerity affected young people, the disabled, um, uh, poor communities like yeah. across England and Wales and Scotland. And they shored up, like, old people. And this time, with May, they was like, well we can maybe try and make some sounds towards helping young people and the disabled, mm. but we're going to have to attack somebody. So let's attack, like, we're going to have to make up those savings somewhere. So we have to do that in, yeah, it, with, with old people. And you it's, would have thought that the like electoral catastrophe that for them, that was 2017, hmm. you would have thought that would have taught them, but apparently not. No, apparently well, everyone's forgotten. Apparently maybe within a year, potentially of a general election, they thought a good idea is let's have the main soundbite from this pension policy to be work till you're 75. <laughs> With some, incredible. It is weird when absolutely incredible. They did um so like within like a, like a week and a bit like because Boris has in the last couple of days has been doing that the it's how disgusting it is that the BBC is taking away your free license fee. 
Oh yeah, yeah. And it's just like, look, I'm gonna shout at the BBC and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna shame them into giving you that free license feedback. Mm. You will be working until you're seventy five. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, it's it's also not aside from anything else. It's also completely counterproductive. Mm. Like, how many people are actually going to be able to work in the jobs that they're in at the moment mm-hmm. when they're seventy five? And I'm not even talking about like obviously there's like loads of like physical jobs mm-hmm. that are going to be get more difficult as you get older um which like require it you can like companies can like make allowances for that but they're not going to be able if you're to... in a tower block that was on fire do you want a 74 year old fire <laughs> yeah um and it just seems like it seems like a proper like who is who is that designed to appeal to that is a function, like with Gordon Brown and the British Jobs mm. of British Workers, that's a function of being in power for too long mm. because they look at that and they see a problem that they need solving, which is eliminate the uh, like eliminate welfare mm-hmm. and pensions is a is the, by, by far and away the yeah. largest proportion of, of social welfare costs in this country, right? Mm. And they see that problem and they see well, we need to reduce that. Clearly, people are so aligned to what our priorities and what we think about things, that they will see the need for this. But if they don't, we've got a few things to soften the pill, like an employer-led midlife MOT. Why did they have to put employer-led in there? Why didn't, if they had just said midlife, I don't know what that is. I don't know what a midlife MOT is. I can probably guess, having been surrounded by bureaucracy (laughs) the the entirety of my life. (laughs) But why, that's just... There's there's spiteful and cruel, mm-hmm. and then there's just idiotic. Mm-hmm. Why would you put employer-led at the beginning of that phrase? Do they assume people like their bosses now? Do they really? Are they really that that out of out of touch? I, I think they are because they've empowered. In as far as like a lot of the stuff is just it's cruel, yeah. it's vindictive. You can see their cruel logic behind a lot of it, but yeah. things like that, it's like. Where where did you read that you where did you read that you're liked? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like why? Well, of course it is. It's in every fucking paper. It gets it gets to a point where like you think of the story that Tories must tell themselves at this point. Like maybe not like the Brexit Tories, like the more more extreme right wing Tories, because they've always had a similar story in it. That's self sustaining. It's mm. race based, class based hatreds and, mm. and things like that. But if you look at like a middle of the road centre right Tory. And you look at the story they have to tell themselves about why this country needs like a Tory government, say. Mm. And they say, well, the nature of capitalism is changing. Uh, It's become, with the rise of tech, it's become a lot more easier to get companies off the ground. Mm -hmm. And so we need to provide support to younger entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. individualists who can go up and set companies. That will offset Mm deindustrialization and... They will clearly need workers, so we'll make up, we'll, we'll like do things that will facilitate the gig economy. Mm-hmm. So we won't provide, we won't force them to provide healthcare, we won't like, or, or yeah. uh, we won't force them to, you know, provide insurance, sick days, and working benefits, anything like that. Um, and that will help them. That's our class. Mm. So, like, even though they're telling themselves a story that makes them sound really good in their own heads, that they're beneficial. It still advances a particular view of the world and therefore a particular class project, right? Yeah. Um, you look at this and you're a Tory and you're telling yourself, no, no, you see, you like your employer because we've empowered all these 20-something tech 
tech billionaires. Yeah. And it's like, are, are you are you really? Is that are they employing seventy five? No, are they employing seventy five year olds? Are seventy five year olds desperate to be still be in work? Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's a strand of Toryism that suggests that work is life. That mm-hmm. that wage labor is an end in itself. It yeah. is morally dignified. Yeah. And, well, that's been, and and that's been like Ian Duncan Smith's push for like years. Which I. I I I kind of it's internally consistent ish, yeah. but there is no I just I just refuse to believe there's any way that Ian Duncan Smith or any other of a Tory who tells themselves that they are a social good hmm. can possibly believe that story about no. their own actions, about their own policies, and about this policy in Not particular. At all. Like there's no way. No, it's it's just it's mad. Um, so the other on the pivot side mm-hmm. of the Tories and their many works <laughs> we have the scrambling of the Remain side to come up with a way of stopping Brexit mm-hmm. this month's tactic has been somebody the Cirque de la Resistance somebody su- this <laughs> somebody suggested I don't know where this started somebody suggested a while ago, a unity government mm-hmm. that could command the votes of Labour, Lib Dems, SNP, and enough Remainee Tories mm-hmm. to uh, vote down the government and form a unity government to stop Brexit. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember who restarted the conversation this time, but everybody really really leaned into it with yeah. hilarious results yeah i think first was caroline lucas with her all white her her, her chardonnay aisle parliament <laughs> her chardonnay cabinet which was delicious um, it was a, it was a list of all white all female politicians Yvette cooper it was like it was the usual kind Heidi of Heidi allen yeah, it was it. Anna Subri, Heidi yeah. Allen. Um, Again, it was another person who'd forgotten that Yvette Cooper isn't in favour of a second referendum. Yeah, because like it, it, did, it didn't even really matter. Doesn't matter. And I think she she got a lot of stick for it, and uh, then I think eventually climbed down yeah. on the whole idea. But for for a couple of days, that was her thing. Then for some reason, somebody started up the idea of a joint unity caretaker government hmm. with uh, Ken Clark. Ken Clark did have the most Ken Clark response to that of, I haven't really been paying attention to the news because I've been on holiday, but yeah, sure. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, okay, great. Okay, Ken Clark, what's your idea that's going to get everybody so so full of vim and vigour for this this weird new thing that we're going to do that's like like we're at war? Oh, you want to do the, the withdrawal agreement again? Fine. <laughs> But it was a, it was incredible that day. It was like suddenly somebody said Ken. It was t- Ken Clark and a female MP. Um, Vet Cooper probably. I, I don't know if it was Vet Cooper. It might have been. Um, it might. Have, I don't know whether it was Joe Swinson and Ken Clark. It was. It was basically this is the anyone but Corbyn. They have yeah, the idea of yeah. a unity government, and it's and it's. Yeah. No one will get behind Corbyn because Corbyn is the most hated man in all the land. Now, yeah. someone who served in Thatcher's cabinet <laughs> is universally loved. And someone who served in the austerity government. Yeah, both of these the people are fine. Coalition. Both of these people are fine. Um, no but, one has a negative view of anything to do with the Tories who sided with the. With, but it was uh, incredible. It, it the was incredible how the group mind just picked up on this and said, "Oh yeah, no, yeah, Ken Clark. Yeah, I mean, he's the obvious choice." It's like, yeah. no, in what in what universe is the oldest man in Parliament <laughs> a Tory, a Remainer, but not one who's been particularly like out there? Like he's close to retirement. Mm-hmm. Clearly, mm-hmm. is he going to stand at the next election? I. I 
I maybe doubt it. Yeah. And also, way to reach back to a man who was literally in the first series of Spitting Image as a character, <laughs> who was a joke then. Look, Cor- uh, wh- Corbyn can't lead a unity government because he doesn't own an opera cape. <laughs> Has he ever got off work early to do a drink a half bottle of champagne? <laughs> Oh yeah, that's a good point. That was done in the thick of it as well, wasn't it? Yes. That he was a joke in the thick of it, which ended nine years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I don't think you understand. He's sensible. I go as feeling like they're they're looking. Because he drank half a bottle of champagne. They're looking around, and obviously, like uh, continuity remain kind of again lost its mind with fantasy fantasy politics mm-hmm. because it's that time of year again. It's this time in the cycle when they start mm-hmm. talking about who they'd like to see, who they'd like to appoint. Mm. which in itself is pretty fucking galling Yeah, that you can imagine you're the kind of person who has the right sense to be able to appoint a democratic leader, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, I, stop, it using, really, stop using the D word at that point. Yeah, like it really, really riles me up. At some point, they're going to have to deal with the idea that it is only Jeremy Corbyn. He's leader of the opposition for a reason. He has the second largest number of MPs in that parliament, and it's... It's going to be him... Oh, look, you've got to listen to no Joyce Winston. What. She has the fourth largest. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, getting out. it's going higher all the time. It's getting filled with so many turncoats. <laughs> Who wouldn't trust the turn, the queen of turncoats? Listen, if you listened to the foreign, the shadow foreign secretary, as he referred to himself, Chaka Ramuna, <laughs> he was appointed, I think it was last week. Yeah. Now, they Not used to say, point. they used to say, like, foreign affairs spokesman for the Lib Dems. Yeah. No, no, no. Shadow foreign spokesman or shadow foreign secretary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, he's the real opposition. Mm-hmm. It's like you're so gone, Chucker. I'm sorry, you're so gone. No, he'll be, you're he'll... so gone at the next election. He's, yeah, he's... You're so done. Anyway, um, I I do have like all of my kind of scruples about appointing leaders like come at that this isn't I don't think this is the kind of national emergency that mm. requires a unity government to to do that kind of thing no. I mean uh, uh, maybe that would be required at some point if conditions do deteriorate after a no deal Brexit mm. which that might be the time mm-hmm. for, for that kind of thing but um, I just don't think it's the it's the right time for it now uh, the main thing we, I think we wanted to talk about this week is, uh, I think it happened um, last week. Uh, yeah, I got the, Unist. You got Unist, and uh, it's a very important that we talk about this. How old game is it? Four-year-old game? Five-year-old it's, game? It's a while, yes. Um, no. it's, it's a very good fighting game. It is very good, I'm sure. It's a fighting game, though. I'm not, I'm not equipped for it. Yeah, it's because you're not a man of culture. I'm 35, we are 35 in two days. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm. <laughs> Um, and I'm not equipped for it anymore. Mm. I'm just not. I, I, I'm, I was barely equipped for it when I was in my 20s. <laughs> and it doesn't get... I can't run any faster than I could then. <laughs> so why can I play a fighting game any better? Yeah, good point. Okay, so yeah, what happened this week? <laughs> um, so you uh, actually uh, uh, alerted me to this. There was uh, the Edinburgh Fringe uh, Television Festival. Yeah, yeah. Goes on at the same time as the Edinburgh Festival. Well, they might as well because they're all there anyway. They're, yeah, they're all there anyway. Um, and the McTaggart lecture this year mm-hmm. was given by... Which is like by... a keynote speech given by someone senior and important in the media. Yeah, in, important in telly, yeah. Um, specifically. And this year was given by Dorothy Byrne, mm-hmm. who is head of news at Channel 4. Mm-hmm. She uh, 
what was it you said she was like their backup option after their original one fell yeah i think i, I think fell I, through. I think one one or maybe two blokes fell through mm-hmm. um this happened last year which is why they had the woman who did chewing gum yeah so chewing gum yeah yeah i'm um, doing she did a good speech but anyway yeah, yeah. so she was like um, a standby yeah and there was a, a lot of kind of uh talk about it and i read through it and there was there was it was it was one of those occasions where you had a definite, yeah, fuck yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, all right. And then, like, I read quite a lot of the rest of her her address, and I I, I, I had some feelings. Mm-hmm. Well, it starts off good. She starts off it. saying, like, you know, that she she says that she wasn't first choice, and it's like, you've made some great decisions before, like Kevin Spacey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's quite a who's who of me too. Yeah. That list. Very much so. Um, and she talks about, you know, Rupert Murdoch addressed it in the 90s mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And James Murdoch. And James Murdoch uh, addressed it a couple of times as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about kind of how there, you know, there's not that many women get uh, asked to to speak there and, no. and uh, things like that. And she does, uh, she said, elsewhere, I looked at the previous, she said she looked at the previous people who'd given the keynote speech and she said, elsewhere on the list I spotted one name among my predecessors who has not yet had the comeuppance he deserves for his assaults on women. That's one of the things about being an old lady. You gather a lot of information. To men who have behaved badly in the past, I say this. You know who you are and so do I. <laughs> Which was kind of cool. And then that kind of made me look through the last... The last few years of uh, who's given who's given keynote speeches mm-hmm. at this uh, who's given them at Taggart lecture. Um, <clears throat> just going backwards, uh, let's see, twenty seventeen, John Snow from the Channel Four, twenty sixteen, Shane Smith, uh, Chief Executive Vice, mm-hmm. twenty fifteen, Armando Iannucci, mm-hmm. uh, twenty fourteen, David Abraham, Chief Exec of Channel Four, twenty thirteen, Kevin Spacey, Elizabeth Murdoch, Eric Schmidt of Google. Mark Thompson of the BBC, James Murdoch, Peter Finchman, Jeremy Paxman, Charles Allen, Lord Burt, John Humphreys, Tony Ball, Mark Thompson, David Liderman, Greg Dyke. Uh, yeah, so one of those has some <laughs> unaddressed, allegedly, according allegedly. to Dorothy Byrne. Yeah, has some, not us. Perhaps, maybe has We're some questions. We're not making allegations. No, 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 I, I just read out what she said. Yep. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Fine. Yeah, no, no, yeah, you're, that's, that's fully, yeah, no, fully, fully covered. Um, um, yeah, and she said some excellent things about kind of sexual assaults in, in the media and mm-hmm. kind of climate uh, that women have been expected to work under. She said that the first day at Granada, a female boss had told me that a director would take me out to teach me the basics of filming and that he would sexually assault me because I wasn't to take it personally because he sexually assaulted all the women he worked with. It's like, whew, fucking hell. Um, but her main themes were... Um, and this is what got it a lot of coverage because there was then a section on the Today programme on Radio 4 mm-hmm. um, about TV news, democratic accountability and whether you should call call politicians up when they lie, right? Mm-hmm. Um so about democratic accountability, she said, um, we play a vital role in democratic debate in this country. Citation needed. Viewing figures for election debates and interviews are high, as they were for the recent Tory leadership debate. In the debates, Boris Johnson deigned to join and around five million viewers watched. That's way more than can be reached by any newspaper. Like, and certainly for the Tories. Like Simpsons return. repeat rates. But it'll come. <laughs> Don't believe politicians when they say that the public doesn't trust the so-called mainstream media in the UK. They trust TV. Remember, terrestrial television has huge levels of trust. 71%. Look how they use it. Mm-hmm. 
It's politicians who are not trusted. They have a trust rate of 19%. And news on the internet, the medium politicians are increasingly using to bypass us, has, according to recent Reuters Institute figures, a trust level of only 22%, with a mere 10% for news on social. Um, many of you will have seen the excellent recent BBC series on Margaret Thatcher. One striking feature was the number of lengthy television interviews Thatcher did. Leaders of the past subjected themselves to half-hour or 45-minute interviews with the likes of Brian Warden and Robin Day and held regular press conferences. During the 1987 election, Thatcher and Kinnock chaired daily press conferences and gave several full-length interviews. Even more recently, Miliband and Cameron also did extensive interviews on election campaigns. So, all through this thing, there is a common thread running, the idea that TV news and specifically kind of TV interviews of politicians are a are more than just a ratings grab they are an important civic duty mm-hmm. right so she continues however Theresa however Theresa May when she was leader and Corbyn failed to hold themselves to account in the same way in the 2017 election May and Corbyn only did one or two events a day throughout her time as PM May's longest ooh, interview ooh, for that there yeah one or two events a day and uh, Theresa May was weird during the election. She like hit her hit a lot. They, yeah. they hit her a lot. But Corbyn, he does a lot. It's just the changing. It's the the what she means by event because it's not really what she an means event is unless a sit down there. interview in a yeah. studio. And it doesn't count if they're not there to to tell you. Yeah. Like if a politician goes to, goes to visit a soup kitchen and there's no and there's no journalist to record it. Did it, did happen? it happen? Yeah. 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 Um, throughout her time as PM, May's longest interview with Channel Four News was seven minutes. How do you delve into the complex problems of our time it's at times in a few minutes? Jeremy Corbyn sometimes permits only one question and then doesn't answer it. And it just it's she does give the preponderance of of like st- like she gives a really high status to the idea of politicians doing 45 minute interviews mm-hmm. in this in this lecture. And like so how do you delve into complex problems with 15 minute segments and and 45 minute segments? Like I don't understand how that's particularly better given the actual complexity of things. Mm-hmm. You would need hours, surely. And also, is it politicians who determine how long these interviews are? Mm-hmm. How long is your news pro- is your news program 45 minutes? I mean Channel 4's news program is an hour. Yeah. But that's 45 minutes of news and then it slowly kind of pivots to like lesser stories. It's fine. That's the format that they've chosen. But it wasn't politicians who adapted who like it was politicians who adapted to the soundbite. Yeah. That wasn't a decision that they made that they made people do. Yeah. I, I don't it, it it's a very it's a very strained kind of ex- trying to make an example of someone for not doing 45 minute interviews when that's not the yeah. the kind of thing that is offered even on Newsnight. Newsnight's an hour and is an hour? I think it's about an hour. <clears throat> an hour ten, Sometimes maybe. Short. Question time is an hour ten. That's yeah. the longest blast of unfiltered politics it's... you can get in a week, and that's fucking a reality show at this point. Uh, yeah, and if you can watch that and think that people want more, yeah, yeah. At the 2018 Conservative Party conference, Mrs May made history by refusing to do interviews with Channel 4 or Channel 5. Other broadcasters were so appalled that they signed a letter of protest to Downing Street, for which I thank them. When we were trying to get that interview, Robbie Gibb, May's press supremo, said to us, what's in it for us? As if interviews were purely for the benefit of politicians and not the public. And so, they always have been. Hmm. Why do you think that they do it? Do you think that Thatcher, when she was opening herself up to 45-minute interviews, Hmm. that she was doing it because she felt that her decisions needed more scrutiny. Yeah. Does that sound, out of everything you know about Thatcher, does that sound like a personality trait she indulged? <laughs> it's like who's, it's just seems, this isn't bad. That's the thing. Nothing in this lecture is bad. It's just, it seems 
naive, if not disingenuous, mm. to suggest that these changes to the way that politicians appear on telly are entirely driven by politicians. Mm -hmm. I think it always, you always have to view it as it's a medium that changed over time and politicians adapted exception, actually exceptionally well, yeah. as in profitably for them, yeah. to the also, changing circumstances. Like yeah, the, and also that if she got everything that she wanted, what would it do? It's that, it's that yeah. thing with um, it's the Donald Trump outside Marine One thing when they were asked him, they asked him about him being friends with Epstein. Yeah, and he just pointed to the sky and said, "It looks like it's going to rain," and walked away. Yeah, he's got a magic. And to be honest, that's not even that um, thing because how many times have you seen uh, politicians like going into their homes? It's like, Minister, are you going to resign? Hmm. Uh, yeah. It's a wonderful day. That's that's standard. Yeah. That Trump thing was totally overblown because, like, other than the fact that he gave them an interesting, hmm. like, weird anecdote that adds to the disease <laughs> brain fuck that is that entire presidency, yeah. it's not really it's that, not different that different from what people have been doing for decades, no. you know? Um, she talks about uh, Boris refusing to do uh, interviews, only relying on um, Conservative Party social media to give, like, to give media appearances. Um but on Facebook, and yeah, but it was on the yeah on the Conservative Party Facebook. Mm. So it's all it's all mediated without them. Which I'm, I'm sure Nick, does seem I'm to sure be... Nick Clegg's Facebook would hold <laughs> Boris Johnson, his former colleague, to account. <laughs> um, on taking office, uh, but he Boris recorded a jolly statement, so much more fun than being grilled by Emily Maitlis or Jon Snow. It reminded me of something, and at first I couldn't think what it was, and then it came to me. This great flag bearer for democracy, Vladimir Putin, who also likes to talk directly to the nation. I mean, if we're talking in those terms, the Queen. Yeah. The Queen only talks directly to the nation mm -hmm. through telly. Or, if you wanted to get a little less anti-monarchist and a little less old anarchist about it, the fucking American president. Mm -hmm. Roosevelt started the tradition of like the presidential like fireside chats. Yeah. And where he talked to the nation over the radio. I don't know if they still do it. I Oh God, can you imagine Trump's fireside chats? He has to talk on the radio for like 15 minutes every single week. <laughs> Actually, yeah, if they don't happen, they should reinstitute that. That would be amazing. After five minutes, he's look, looking at the clock and wondering if he can go. He's like, no, you can't go. You can't go. You <laughs> no, can't no, 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 no. He would never, he has never stopped early on anything. That's he has, a good point. Any speaking engagement he has ever. He would be talking about this, this, this fireplace. I had a fireplace twice this size. <laughs> I think if I, if I, I, I'd be, I'd lose my job if I worked for Trump so quickly because you know that thing of like he does do that thing of if the last thing you say to him it just sticks in his head, mm. and I would just constantly say like you know aliens are real yeah, and then he'd go out <laughs> and then he'd just go on to this long thing yeah I'd you say, say that you say that right zero you, point energy Mr President zero point energy you say Tesla, yeah you see, the government took all of Tesla's stuff you say <laughs> that you would t like t tell him about you know uh, alien aliens are real and they really yeah. need to be the American public really need to be told you would do. You know they they just removed all the squats from the game work, games workshop uh, front page. <laughs> they got rid of them. It was terrible. They just got rid of them. No trace. Yeah. People want them though. They're calling out for it. Your supporters. People come to squats. me and they say, "Why won't Games Workshop do the squats? They've got the Citadel Miniatures Factory right there. They're using this very good clean lead, clean pewter, <laughs> <laughs> clean lead for their models, white lead. No poisoning, folks. Bring back the squats. They say to me." Yeah, I would do that. I just I really wanted to do a Trump impression. We don't do American politics enough, so like, I always want to do a Trump impression because everybody has one. It's really fucking easy. Mm -hmm. You just let your mind go. It's <laughs> like you could do temporary enforced senility on your brain. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, then she then kind of moves her, uh, Dorothy Byrne moves her focus to Corbyn. And what about this man? The leader of the opposition is rarely to be heard in any significant television interview. It's not so much, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, as no Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, did you hear that at Matt Ford's show? <laughs> yeah, apparently. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn gave the alternative McTaggart lecture last year, and some of you may remember that he said, at their best, journalists challenge accountable power. Yes, Jeremy, we need the chance to question accountable power. He also said that fearless journalists and those who support them and their work are some of the heroes of their time. That raises a weird question, like, does, que- does the questioning accountable power that Corbyn talks about, does it require the presence of that power in a room? Like, what he's talking yeah. about, presumably, is investigative journalist that investigates issues rather than tries to pin down one person. It was something like, you ever remember the Cook Report? Yeah. Like, where he used to chase down, like, there would be a yeah. bad businessman who was, like, I don't know, using, like, fetuses in uh, his fast food or something. Yeah. And they would run up to him outside his house mm. and try to pin him down. Yeah. And it's like, that does literally nothing. You yeah. have no power over that man. What did he do? He got in his car and ran away. Yeah. And it's like... Do you think that by getting them in a room and catching them out and having them speechless, that that does anything to what, to what they're going to do yeah. with their institutional power, with their, the but power that they wield? The, um, the Remain Brain thing of saying like, oh, look, Jeremy Corbyn, Jemberly Groblin, um, he's like saying that you should hold power to account, but then he never lets us question him. And it's like, you know he's not in power. He's not in power. He hasn't been. He's in charge of the Labour Party, a powerful institution, don't get me wrong. But it's not Prime Minister. Yeah, it has no state power at the moment. At all. At the moment, it doesn't have that. Hmm. But she's done, that's, a lot of them do that, though. But, you know. And, you know, I understand. She's head of TV news. She would like more politicians to be on her TV news. Well, yeah, she wants more She wants, like, more, yeah, con- of course she wants more content, because there's only so many times you can do a thing about squats. Hmm. <laughs> um... What would Margaret Thatcher have thought of these two mighty oh leaders God. who avoid the regular grillings she accepted? I would never have thought I would say these words. I believe that Mrs. Thatcher would agree with me. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn are cowards. She had a word for men like them, Frit. <laughs> Talking about the like Thatcher subjecting herself to TV interviews reminds me of that Peter Cook bit about ah uh, we how he wanted the um what was it called the the strand the thing he had the his show the. His satire show that he put on in the West End. I can't remember. That was like a precursor to the TV stuff. Um, uh, he does a bit about uh, he wanted to model it on the Berlin political cabarets that did so much to stop the rise of Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yes, she was on telly for 45 minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. And look what it did. Yep. Look what it did to her rise. Yep, it was Channel 4 News that managed to get rid of her. Yeah. Um, um, the, it, there's another interesting thing as well, actually. I was looking it up. Um, interestingly, today, I think it was, uh, Lord... Lord Bell, Tim Bell, died. He was Thatcher's kind of PR person, Mm. came up with the Labour Isn't Working poster and really, like, didn't just work for a wage, really, really believed in the Thatcher project. Mm -hmm. Um, As a a wealthy businessman, I wonder why. But um, And he, in his obituary, they say uh, he was like her chief coach for interviews and things like that. And I dug up this. There was an article a couple of years ago. Somebody did a, a psychological study on... It was called Interruptions in Political Interviews, a study of Margaret Thatcher and Neil Kinnock. Uh, it was Peter Bull and Kate Meyer. I think they were psychologists at the University of York. They studied eight televised interviews um, from four different interviewers who uh, interviewed both Thatcher and Kinnock. I think it was in 87. 
There was no significant difference found between Margaret Thatcher and Neil Kinnock, either in the extent to which they interrupt or were interrupted by the interviewers. Where the politicians did diverge was in the degree to which Margaret Thatcher explicitly protests at being interrupted. She objected to being interrupted much more than Kinnock, and the psychologists contend this gave the misleading impression that she was being excessively interrupted, although the objective evidence uncovered in the study clearly shows this was not true. The impression created by this device was that she was badly treated. She, uh, the sense was compounded by her tendency to personalise issues, to take questions and criticisms as accusations, and to frequently address the interviewers formally by title and surname, as if they needed to be called to account for their misdemeanours. She, they conclude that these techniques pushed interviewers onto the defensive. Um, they concluded from their analysis that Margaret Thatcher revealed a striking mastery of the arts of political one-upmanship, continually wrong-footing interviewers and putting them on the defensive, such as that they felt obliged to justify and even apologise for their role as interviewers. And if you've ever seen one of those Thatcher, yeah. Thatcher interviews, she does. She goes, so what am I supposed to do? She hmm. gets very, very defensive and accusatory. You don't get any truth from there. No. You don't get any insight. What you get is a political battle between two personalities mm. that one person is gonna mm. gonna climb down eventually. You don't learn about why they want the policy there. No. You just learn that they're the ones. Ultimately, on a very like like primitive level, you learn that they're the ones who are going to go to the death mm -hmm. to fight for those particular things. Whether yeah. that attracts you or not is you know neither here nor there. Like she lords the long form interview format and she keeps going on about it in this in this lecture but it does in theory if you're going to get the best out of it it relies on the kind of like consensual relationship mm. it relies on a kind of shared again this is just in theory it relies on some kind of shared ground and like shared values about what they're they want to get out of it and it ultimately yeah. re relies on some kind of like empathy yeah between it, the well, interviewer it's and relying the on the fact that it's relying on an idea that they're not going to go into it knowing exactly what a long-form interview is and how to game it to win yeah so, no. Like, she was literally trained to do psych stuff, mm -hmm. to psych the interviewers out, to avoid getting... This is the, this is the thing that's lacking from, from this kind of thing of saying, oh, we need more... Like, we need more media time on mm -hmm. politicians. Right, A, the, stru like the commercial structure of the media means that you are not going to get it. Mm. Like, people don't want to watch it. If people no. don't want to watch it, there's a commercial imperative for the TV channels to not show it and allocate time to things that people want to watch and will pay to watch. Advertisers mm. will pay to advertise in. Um, secondly, like, I don't know if it's the best look. Because, I mean, she does mention the, at the beginning about Rupert Murdoch saying that we need to give people what, they, what we want to watch. Mm. And that was the kind of changing from an old-fashioned kind of institutional view of... The, of that the media had of themselves as like this, as she says, these the watch like guardians of, mm. of proper political scrutiny and all that. Um, that was the change from that to the commercial commercially led imperative that has led to yeah seven minutes at seven minute interviews, short sound bites, hyped up political debates that don't really solve anything. These were yeah. all things that the commercial imperative to get more viewers forced on the channels. You know, and then her response to that seems to be, let's lean back on our institutional role as democracy's watchdogs. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's, that's a lame way of doing that because that's what every establishment liberal is doing, mm -hmm. is they're leaning back on institutional power yeah. and their institutional role in this fantasy world where everything is balanced. You, it's, it's like, it's, it's, 
the liberal idea of pluralism is that you have a load of different like forces in society all balanced by a central government that takes all of their concerns into account and acts on them in a way that doesn't diminish any of the others when they're not heard. Mm -hmm. So what she's saying is that she would like it if it went back to this, completely ignoring the imbalance of power mm -hmm. in this country. It's, it's very strange. And like, she talks about how... Um, oh, Robin Day or whoever got the best out of Thatcher. And it's like, even if that was true back then, which, given the, psych the, the mm -hmm. psychological stuff that Thatcher yeah. prepared for interviews, I don't think it, it is true. Um, she, what has the story of political reporting and interviews been since Paxo interviewed Michael Howard and asked him the same question 26 times? Yeah. The, the, the vision that they have of a successful interview is a journalist who's actually bothered, but who wants to put... who, who wants to actually like basically put a politician to the torch yeah. to like properly go in on them. And the end result is the best result they can get is leaving them speechless mm -hmm. is to be able to catch them out in a gotcha so that they don't have an answer um, to catch them like speechless so that they, they don't have an answer yeah. so that they can't give an answer without lying. Now that's, that doesn't progress anything. That doesn't tell anybody no. anything. What they want is politicians to be willing and journalists to be willing, but the, the, the whole model's, model's changed. After that Paxman interview, um, people get, like, uh, uh, politicians, like, get really, really well trained in delivering the official press release, mm -hmm. just answering the question straight up. Mm -hmm. They made have made satires about it. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, Minister talks a bit about it of like not answering the question that you're asked, answering the question that you want to answer. Mm -hmm. The thick of it makes a fucking religion of it. Yeah. Those in the thick of it, you're told that the people who manage to answer the question without getting made caught caught with their pants down are the good ones. They're yeah. the most successful They're the ones. ones. The best of their job. They're the best ones. That's mm -hmm. a professional competency. You can't just take that and say, actually, they shouldn't be doing that because that was in response to the way that the media thinks. I'm not standing for either of them. I hate no. both of them. Yeah. But you can't deny that these, the way that the media approaches politics in general, I think probably has more of an influence on the way political discourse is shaped than the politicians themselves. Mm -hmm. And in fact, maybe Trump and Boris and their, you know, one word answers and their jokey demeanor and their, you know, lying media and all that. That's just the most successful thing because they've just worked out all you have to do is you don't even, you say the thing that you want to say and it doesn't even matter if it's mm. even coherent anymore. Mm -hmm. It never mattered whether it was about the, the, the thing that they were asking about, but it, now it doesn't even matter if it's related to anything in reality. Yeah. Because all, it, all that matters is entertainment. All that matters is getting those viewers on there. Mm -hmm. And they're just maybe the first, the head of the curve in understanding it. And like Dorothy Byrne in this lecture does mention, you know, she wants, to, she wants people to elucidate an alternative vision. That's what they would have to do about... In order to question them, they would have to... Like she goes on and on about impartiality and then says, well, journalists need to elucidate a contrary vision in order to question politicians. Mm -hmm. But that then bypasses impartiality because that aligns the, the journalist, the supposedly neutral centre of this whole discourse, this whole equation. Yeah. That then anchors them to something that they believe. Mm -hmm. it's, I, I, just, I really hate the idea that... I really hate the idea that the, there's this impartial journalist that exists out mm. there because we have we have a ton of political journalists that are impartial and do you know what they ask they ask what are you going to do about knife crime mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just that question yeah. none of the basic none of the issues around it none of the complexities complexities of race policing um 
like drug trafficking, any of that. All they need to do is ask the question, how are you going to deal with knife crime? And then when the person says it's more complex, they say, yes, but there have been more knife crimes. And then the other person says, well, actually, yes, but didn't you get rid of a load of police? Yes, I did. There's none of that. Even you could give them half an hour on that, Mm -hmm. and that would still be the model. Yeah. You know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, anyway, she... She goes on to talk about the thing that actually got her most of the headlines, um, which was talking about the fact that uh, TV like media journalists need to call out lying mm-hmm. when they see it. So she says, uh, here is what we all need to decide. What do we do when a known liar becomes our prime minister? I've talked to journalists from several television organisations about this issue. They said they would be loath to use that word liar. Remember when Andrew Marr told Penny Morden her claim that the UK couldn't stop Turkey from joining the EU was strange. It was strange, but it was also untrue. A lie. Is it time for us to start using the L word? I believe that we need to start calling politicians out as liars when they lie. If we continue to be so polite, how will our viewers know that politicians are lying? If we are asked to cast our votes in the basis of lies, then democracy is in trouble. At Channel 4, I've commissioned many award-winning international films in Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, North Korea, Iraq, Syria. But the films that matter most, like MPs for Hire, which investigate our own country and its politicians. Oh yeah, our own MPs and politicians had nothing to do with anything in Iraq. Yeah. Or lying politicians. (laughs) Boris Johnson's equivalent of Trump's attack on the negativity of journalists and opponents is to rail against the doubters, the doomsters, and the gloomsters. I don't need any politician telling me to be patriotic. And it's not being a gloomster to question policies. It's the role of a free press in a democracy. It's time for the television industry to stand up for itself and speak out publicly against what is happening. Yes, we are rivals, but we have to form a united front in opposing attempts to sideline our central role in the political life of this country. And don't forget the idea, and forget the idea that the public can judge what is true. We showed 1,700 people six stories and asked them to judge which were true and which were false. Only 4% of people got all the answers right. And why should they? They are not in a position to research the truth of stories. That's what journalists are there for. So that was like the main kind of thing that got uh, put out there about Mm -hmm. uh, her speech. And it kicked off this whole huge thing. Radio 4, the Today programme, in their traditional style, which it must be on purpose, said, should we call politicians liars when they lie? And uh, (laughs) I think it was John Rintel was saying like, no. Yeah, John Rintel was like, really? You have a problem with lying politicians? John Rintel was like, because um, Boris cancelled an interview with Channel 4, mm. um, because probably because of this speech. Um, and John Rental was like, well, what do you expect him to do? And it's like, you're a good journalist, John Rental. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a good journalist. It's, it's one like, the- he's, he's existed for thousands of years and he's never learned the basics of journalism. Like, the first time I read anything that he said was, you know, what is a man but a miserable pile of secrets? And... <laughs> Yeah, he seems to have given up on that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, I approach this two ways because, like, yes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, politicians are really good where they never get into the position where they actually lie. Mm-hmm. Like, this is like, this feels very, feels very basic. It feels mm-hmm. very like, this is kind of the kind of thing a four-year-old would ask. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay, t- take, take like a politician being interviewed on a policy like, um, like subsidies for oil and gas. Right. Um, if you uh, UK has like the highest fossil fuel subsidies in the EU, despite committing to like uh, getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies, subsidies to tackle carbon emissions. So if you go on a program, if a politician goes on a program, and the presenter asks why haven't you phased these out, right? The politician can say, well, 
oh, it's a complex issue, we're trying to work it out, but also uh, we need to be careful not to go too fast because there's so many jobs at stake. There's mm. so many jobs. Boom. They didn't lie. Mm-hmm. They didn't tell an untruth. They just condemned the planet to uh, high temperatures and yeah. death and horror. Yeah. There's no point in that where calling that politician a liar would have helped out because they'll never get into that position. That's what the whole Thatcher project was about. Mm. That's what hegemony is about. You frame the issue in a way that uh, job you, you place priorities on the elements within the policy that you're talking about to say, well, we'd like to stop climate change, but job losses come first. Mm-hmm. And they have always successfully managed to convince media figures that that is, is what matters, you know? It's just, it's a weird... It's kind of a it's kind of a weird frame to look at it in terms of like are you lying or not? I don't like the implication that it's a new thing at all. No, no, not at um, all. Because Theresa May lied, Cameron lied, um, Gordon Brown lied, Blair lied. All of them. All of them. But they, ne- but I, it's it's not as simple as to say they knowingly told an untruth. I'm sure they definitely did. Blair some, 100% some, uh, did a oh, 100%. But that's what made that. Uh, the weird thing is when that happens explicitly, mm. that got really that that really rankled people. They were really mm. after that, and there was an obvious point that they could point to to say you specifically lied about that thing. Most of the other bad stuff Blair did, he didn't lie about. No, no. He framed it in a way that said it would be good for you. And to be honest, it's kind of short-circuited now with Boris because he can tell a lie and it doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. that same same purchase because of the institutional role of the media in taking on the lie, the specific lie and the general lie, like the specific lie being the weapons of mass destruction thing with Blair, the general lie being invasion is an important thing that we need to do. Mm -hmm. Um... They took they took that on, and now they can't tell the difference. It it really yeah. it really doesn't matter anymore. No, you know, um, and like it's just the whole framing of like the journalist as neutral, neutral arbiter, almost absent from the process mm-hmm. because they're the accusator, right? Mm. They're in the room with the person. They're the only person who gets to be in the room. They're yeah. the point man. She said it herself yeah. in the earlier part of the lecture. She said. People don't know how to judge truth and fiction for themselves. Yeah. So we have to do it because we're the only ones, subtext being, we're the only ones with the institutional power, mm-hmm. the institutional force, to get in the room with the politician face-to-face and tell them that they're lying. Now, to me, that's not sufficient for a proper no. de- for proper democratic accountability. No. Like, that's... It was clearly insufficient with the Iraq war, mm-hmm. and it's clearly insufficient with Boris. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you get Boris down for 45 minutes. No. Boris could appear in this TV studio within 45 minutes, the warning should be. <laughs> um, and like, also, like, they, the way that they absent themselves is like the way that they absent their role in, in producing news. Not just, yeah. They're not just waiting for other things, uh, for politicians to react. The other element that they're waiting to react to is they react to the newspapers. They react to the discourse. They react to the general mood, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. Generally, it's what are people talking about on Twitter in the morning? Mm -hmm. What are the papers saying in the morning? What have they decided is important, right? So if you look at the the reporting on Labour's stance on Brexit, for example, Mm -hmm. right? 
Papers lead with Labour chaos over Brexit. There's a bunch of tweets from high-profile accounts saying, I can't believe they can't decide what yeah. they're going to do. This is chaos. God, load of jokes, load of memes, whatever. The TV news comes on at maybe 1 o'clock. That's just a basic thing. The kind of more in-depth stuff happens at 6 and 10. They go with... They get a Labour person on in the evening to answer this question, which is, uh, why is your Brexit stance so chaotic? Mm-hmm. Is it chaotic? Mm-hmm. Did they did they do that, or did they follow the lead from earlier on? Yeah. The idea that journalists are neutral arbiters glancing over the whole landscape of a particular issue, taking up their own particular points of interest, the things that they think are interesting to people, is false. Mm-hmm. They go along with the flow. They go along with exactly the same narrative as yeah. always as they always have. There are commercial imperatives, but that's the way. Also, the way the institution works. It would be difficult to research everything in a single day. Mm-hmm. It would di- be difficult to come up with your own particular spin on something at the at the beginning of the day. You don't know whether you're going to need a Tory person on to answer. You're going to don't know whether you're going to need a Labour person on to answer. It's incredibly. It's incredibly difficult to kind of plot that out, mm-hmm. and so of course they they yeah they go on the on the basis of of what other people are talking about, and like to go back to the the Murdoch point she made about kind of giving people what they want. We've been living under that now for thirty forty years. Yeah, of you can give people non news stories, you can give them entertainment as news, because um, that's what people want. And of course, the more people are, are given that, the more people's kind of certain parts of their brain are stimulated by this certain view of the world of news mm. as ultimately it has to be interesting and entertaining and and like orgasmic mm. i don't know i don't know that much about i'm pretty sure there's a deluso guitar i think about like <laughs> the power of the orgasm through news yeah. news reporting or something but i'm sure jj yeah. ballard deluso guitar read mark fisher yeah um the more that people are given that, the more that they're going to complain when that is taken off and not watch it. And mm. therefore, it's, it's, a, it's a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. They've already been given this particular heightened, ecstatic sense of the news and, and of politics as entertainment. And if you take that away, they will stop watching. But they're, So therefore, it's not what they want anymore. Yeah. So like, unless you tackle the reasons why the public appetite is for certain kind of things and not others... And unless you're brave enough to take a stance that does actually just say, I want this particular thing in this particular way, not the format mm-hmm. of the television news, but the actual questions that are being answered and the ways that those things are being framed. Ultimately, I'm saying get more fucking socialists on your fucking news channel. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You take the piss out of John Pilger and Cy Hirsch all the fucking time. But they had individual voices mm-hmm. that actually asked questions that no one was asking and they produced the, the good journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, they produced interesting things that got people interested in those things. Like, yeah. I don't really, look, I don't have an answer for it. I'm not fucking head of news or mm-hmm. in any kind of news media organisation or anything like that. I don't know the kind of pressures you're under. But, like, ultimately you would think that that would be a thing that you would start to think about, how to hook people off talking yeah. about politics in those terms, about about slowing down the 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 endorphin rush of, of, of 24-hour news and mm-hmm. sound bites and things like that. Like, people have been talking about sound bites for 20 years. So slow them down. Yeah. Don't use them. Only agree to interview politicians if politicians want to come to you to like sell a make some sell a line, to make some some policy, or you know they want to defend something. Make sure they do have to have half an hour, mm. and like instruct your interviewers, get better interviewers to, that are better informed, mm-hmm. that don't have to just rely on calling someone a liar. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. If you have to do that, that's the very least you can do. That's yeah. the absolute beginning of the thing you do when you're holding people to account. Definitely. Okay, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo and Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will not see you next week because you're on holiday, but we will see you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to cut my...